It's summer. And to welcome the warmer weather, we have a sunny selection. From sailing to squirrels, from gardening to golf, from halcyon days to holidays. In this, the June edition of the Worcester Talking Magazine. With me in the studio are... Janet, Gloria, Barney and I'm Stephen. Well, one of the wonders of an English summer is the English garden in full bloom. And one of Rudyard Kipling's most popular poems is his hymn in praise of the English garden, the glory of the garden. Our England is a garden that is full of stately views, of borders, beds and shrubberies, and lawns and avenues, with statues on the terraces and peacocks strutting by, but the glory of the garden lies in more than meets the eye. For where the thick laurels grow along the thin red wall, you will find the tool and potting sheds, which are the heart of all. The cold frames and the hot pipes, the dung pits and the tanks, the roller carts and drain pipes, with barrows and the planks. And there you'll see the gardeners, the men and prentice boys, told off to do as they are bid and do it without noise. For except when seeds are planted and we shout to scare the birds, the glory of the garden, it abideth not in words. And some can pot begonias, and some can bud a rose, and some are hardly fit to trust with anything that grows. But they can roll and trim the lawns and sift the sand and loam, for the glory of the garden occupieth all who come. Our England is a garden. And such gardens are not made by saying, Oh, how beautiful, and sitting in the shade. While better men than we go out and start their working lives at grubbing weeds from gravel paths with broken dinner knives. There's not a pair of legs so thin, there's not a head so thick, there's not a hand so weak and white, nor yet a heart so sick, but it can find some needful job that crieth to be done. For the glory of the garden glorifieth everyone. Then seek your job with thankfulness and work till further orders, if it's only netting strawberries or killing slugs on borders. And when your back stops aching and your hands begin to harden, you will find yourself a partner in the glory of the garden. Oh, Adam was a gardener, and God who made him sees that half a proper gardener's work is done upon his knees. So when your work is finished, you can wash your hands and pray for the glory of the garden that it may not pass away. For the glory of the garden that it may not pass away. Margaret Buckle, the blind Yorkshire poet, also wrote passionately about things rural. First, Gloria reads Blackberry Days. Blackberry Days, when the berries hang thickly, Crimson or dark as the warm sun lies, and the milk-white flower that crowns the cluster is filled with nectar and murmuring flies. Blackberry days, with harebells blowing, coloured like distance, winged seeds on the breeze, and where the lane dips to a sparkle of water, a blue blur of scabious, heavy with bees. Blackberry days, when staring and strolling, forgetting our picking but feasting our eyes, 
We find at our homing our minds full of treasure, baskets half empty and not much for pies. Summer evening. A warm wind moves along the thick-leaved branches of beech and lime. Light summer rain drifts by, rustling and whispering. All the leaves are drinking, quenching the heat-thirst of their myriad mouths, sighing and stretching in their satisfaction. Green tongues innumerable murmur grace together. The air is full of scents. Across the field, the new-cut swathes of grass give out their freshness. Over back garden walls, late lilac, hanging purple and white in heavy plumy sprays, sends out great breaths of sweetness. Across the beck, white peonies, like lovely silken birds, gleam through the falling dusk. The shrunken water whispers its secret way among the stones. Margaret Buckle's poem, Summer Evening, read there by Janet. The beginning of summer sees a new festival here in Worcester, Polish Heritage Day. John Plush went to find out more. Having to transpose it because it's in the wrong key, because they play it on a strange trumpet. They play it in a, a trumpet in D, so the whole thing sort of plays it in different pitches, so I had to transpose it. So what's he talking about? Well, we'll find out in a few moments because I'm in Cathedral Square in Worcester where hundreds of townsfolk have gathered this bank holiday weekend. There's a stage behind me, a stall beside me selling food with a huge queue. It is getting on for lunchtime. And I'm now in front of a stand covered in books and pamphlets and photographs. There's dancing, speeches, lots of music, an exhibition... And I'm told there's even a bouncy castle somewhere. And as if all that wasn't enough, I'm now standing next to a full-sized Spitfire. And it's all because today is Worcester's Polish Heritage Day. And why is there a Spitfire in Cathedral Square? Polish Air Force historian Peter Sikora is here to tell us. Spitfire represents the Polish Air Force as well. During the war, we had 17,000 men and women serving in the Polish Air Force in Britain. We had 10 fighter squadrons, and most of those squadrons flew Spitfires at, at some point. So it is like, uh, like, like the most iconic aircraft ever used uh, in, in a combat. So the same as for British people, for Poles, Spitfire represents the bond between both nations, Poles and, and Britons. Also here today is author Tim Holden, who is himself an authority on Poland's involvement in World War II. The story of Poland in World War II is generally a tragic story. It's a story of great heroism, and to a degree, it's a story of futility as well. The well-known part of the Polish story is the story of the Polish airmen, who, by incredible means managed to reach Britain after the defeat of Poland in early September 1939 when not only was Poland invaded by Germany but it was also invaded by the Russians two weeks later. The airmen who got here fought heroically. They made an enormous contribution to the Battle of Britain and to the ongoing fighting that occurred after that that led to victory in 1945. But whilst they were fighting, 
there were two other great epic events that were occurring in Poland. One of these was the ongoing underground fight that went on in Poland right the way through to 1945 and that was when the Russian occupation began and that fight actually continued until the Russians brutally extinguished it in the years immediately following the end of the war. The contribution that Poland made during World War II was enormous. They provided huge numbers of men in terms of the manpower that was fighting in Britain during the course of the war. The piece Our Mystery Trumpeter had to transpose for today's commemoration is itself swathed in mystery. Known as the Hey Now Mariazzi, Polish for St Mary's Trumpet Call, it was essentially a bugle call, originally played on an instrument in D. So that's why our bugler had to transpose it for his modern B-flat trumpet. Myth and legend suggest that this bugle call dates from at least the 13th century, used at dawn and dusk to signal the opening and closing of the city gates. But it has also acted as an alarm of something unpleasant afoot, something as serious, perhaps, as an enemy invasion, or, conversely, as a signal of victory. Tim Holden tells the tale of a group of Polish escapees from Russia who ended up fighting at the Battle of Monte Cassino in far-off Italy. Two million people were deported to Russia, a small percentage of which managed to escape through Iran in the year 1942. And that group of people wound up fighting on the slopes of Monte Cassino in 1944, and that is when the great bugle call of the Hainau was actually played to signify, as the Polish flag was raised above the ruins of Monte Cassino Abbey, that the battle was over. now ends very abruptly, and there's a 13th century legend to explain why. The hey now is a relatively short bugle call. It would be about one-third of the duration of the last post, and it ends very suddenly halfway through a note where there is a story that a trumpeter on the battlements of Krakow was blowing a warning call to depict the advance of the enemy forces of Muscovy was blowing away and 40 seconds into his blowing of the bugle call and halfway through 
the note, he was struck in the throat by an arrow. And to commemorate that sad event, the bugle call has remained a 40-second piece of music ever since. Polish Heritage Day, a new addition to the Worcester calendar. A prominent existing feature of Worcester's calendar, especially in summer, is of course cricket, a subject which features equally heavily in A.G. MacDonald's comic novel England, Their England, as we hear now. Barney. Donald was enchanted at his first sight of rural England. It was a hot summer's afternoon. There was no wind and the smoke from the red-roofed cottages curled slowly up into the golden haze. The clock on the flint tower of the church struck the half hour and the vibrations spread slowly across the shimmering hedgerows. The entire scene was perfect to the last detail. There stood the vicar beaming absent-mindedly at everyone. There was the blacksmith tightening his snake-buckled belt for the fray and loosening his braces to enable his terrific bowling arm to swing freely in its socket. There, on a long bench outside the three horseshoes, sat a row of elderly men facing a row of pint tankards. Near them, holding pint tankards in their hands, was another group of men, clustered together and talking with great animation. Donald thought that one or two of them seemed familiar. Then he realised they were Mr Hodge and his team already sampling the proprietor's wares. All round the cricket field, small parties of villagers were patiently waiting for the great match to begin. Doves cooed, the haze flickered, the world stood still. At twenty minutes to three, Mr Hodge, having won the toss, sent in his opening pair. One was James Livingstone, a very sound club cricketer, and the other one was called simply Boone. Boone was a huge, awe-inspiring colossus of a man weighing at least 18 stone and wearing all the majestic trappings of a Cambridge blue. The Fordenden team ranged themselves at the bidding of their captain, the Fordenden baker, and the blacksmith prepared to open the attack. It so happened that at the end at which the blacksmith was to bowl, the ground behind the wicket was level for a few yards and then sloped away rather abruptly so that it was only during the last three or four intensive galvanic yards of his run that the blacksmith was visible to the batsman or indeed to anyone on the field of play. The sound club player, having taken guard, was surprised to find that though the field was ready, no bowler was visible. His doubts, however, were soon resolved when the blacksmith came up breasting the slope like the very image of Vulcan, the blacksmith of the gods. The first ball which he delivered was a high full pitch to leg of appalling velocity. It must have lighted upon a bare patch amongst the long grass, for it rocketed first bounce into the hedge, and four byes were reluctantly signalled by the village umpire. The other members of Mr Hodge's team blanched visibly and called for more pints of bitter. The next man in was a youngish professor of ballistics. He muttered something about muzzle velocities and started to do a sum on the back of an envelope. The second ball went full pitch into the wicketkeeper's stomach and there was a delay while the deputy wicketkeeper was invested with the pads and gloves of office. 
The third ball would have hummed past Mr Livingstone's ear had he not dexterously struck it out of the ground for six. And the fourth ball took his leg bail with a bullet-like full pitch. Ten runs for one wicket. The professor got the fifth ball on the right ear and went back to the three horseshoes, while Mr Harcourt had the singular misfortune to hit his wicket before the sixth ball was even delivered. Ten runs for two wickets and one man retired hurt. A slow left-arm bowler, the village rate collector, was on at the other end. Off his first ball, the massive Cambridge blue was easily stumped. Donald was puzzled that so famous a player should play such an awful stroke, until it transpired later on that the portentous boon had gained his blue at Cambridge for rowing and not for cricket. Ten runs for three wickets and one man hurt. The next player, Mr Southcote by name, was a small, quiet young man. He looked as if a fastball would knock the bat out of his hands. He took guard modestly, glanced furtively round the field, as if it was an impertinence to suggest that he would survive long enough to make a study of the fieldsman's positions worthwhile, and hit the rate collector's first ball over the three horseshoes into a hayfield. The ball was retrieved by a mob of screaming urchins, handed back to the rate collector, who scratched his head and then bowled his fast Yorker, which Mr Southcote hit into the saloon bar of the shoes, giving Mr Harcourt such a fright that he required several pints before he fully recovered his nerve. The next ball was very slow and crafty, and it swung a little in the air. A few moments later, the urchins were fishing it out of the squire's trout stream. The rate collector was bewildered. His three famous deliveries had been treated with contempt. What on earth was he to try now? Another six and he'd been laughed out of the parish. Fortunately, the village umpire came to the rescue. Thirty-eight years of umpiring for the Fordenden Cricket Club had taught him a thing or two and he called over firmly and marched off to square leg. At the other end, the fast bowler pounded away grimly until an unfortunate accident occurred. Mr Southcote had been treating with apologetic contempt those of his deliveries which came within reach, and the blacksmith's temper had been rising for some time. An urchin had shouted, Take him off! And the other urchin screamed with delight. The captain had held an ominous consultation with the wicketkeeper and the blacksmith knew that his dismissal was at hand unless he produced a supreme effort. It was the last ball of the over. He halted at the wicket before going back for his run, glared at Mr Harcourt, who'd been driven out to umpire by his colleagues, grasped the ball tightly in his colossal palm, and then turned smartly around and vanished over the brow of the hill. At last, after a long stillness, the ground shook, and the blacksmith came thundering over the crest. The world held its breath as the mighty figure swept up to the crease. But alas for human ambitions. Mr Harcourt, sober, had a very pleasant sense of humour. But Mr Harcourt, rather drunk, was a perfect demon of impishness. As the giant whirlwind of volcanic energy rushed past him to the crease, Mr Harcourt, wobbling uncertainly upon his pins, took a deep breath and bellowed, NOBLE! It was too late for the unfortunate bowler to stop himself. The ball flew out of his hand like a bullet and hit Third Slip full pitch on the kneecap. With a yell of agony, Third Slip began hopping about until he tripped over a tussock of grass and fell on his face in a bed of nettles, from which he sprang up again with another eardrum-splitting yell. 
The blacksmith himself was flung forward by his own irresistible momentum, startled out of his wits by Mr Harcourt's bellow in his ear and thrown off his balance by his desperate effort to prevent himself from delivering the ball. And the result was that his gigantic feet got mixed up among each other and he fell heavily in the centre of the wicket, twisting his ankle. Rooks by hundreds arose in protest from the vicarage cedars. The urchins howled like intoxicated banshees. Mr Southcote gazed modestly at the ground. Mr Harcourt gazed at the heavens. The blacksmith was led hobbling from the field, scowling ferociously. The game resumed, and Mr Southcote continued steadily and skilfully defending his wicket for another quarter of an hour before he inadvertently allowed a ball to strike his person. "'Out!' shrieked the venerable umpire before anyone had a chance to appeal. The score at this point was 69 for 6, last man 52. The only other incident in the innings was provided by an American journalist by name Shakespeare Pollock. Mr Pollock had been roped in at the last moment to make up the eleven, and Mr Hodge and Mr Harcourt had spent quite a lot of time on the way down trying to teach him the fundamental principles of the game. Mr Pollock stepped up to the wicket and struck the first ball he received towards square leg, threw down his bat and set off at a great rate towards cover point. There was a paralysed silence. Mr Pollock stopped suddenly and said, Well, darn me, thought I was playing baseball. He smiled disarmingly round. Baseball is a kind of rounders, isn't it, sir? said cover point sympathetically. Donald thought he had never seen an expression change as suddenly as Mr Pollock's did at this harmless and true statement. A look of concentrated, ferocious venom obliterated the charming smile. Mr Pollock walked back to the wicket and was out next ball. The next two batsmen, Major Hawker, the team's fast bowler, and Mr Hodges did not score. And the innings closed at 69. Donald not out Nought. Did you know that if a member of the fielding side places his helmet on the ground and the ball touches it after being hit by a batsman, the umpire gives five penalty runs to the batting side? Or regardless of how obvious it is that a wicket has been taken, the fielding team should turn to the umpire and appeal for a wicket. If they don't, the umpire won't raise his finger to declare out. There are several obscure rules to the game of cricket and a novice observer can often be stumped by what he sees. Gloria has some pointers to help us out. You have two sides, one out in the field and one in. Each man in the side that's in goes out and when he's out he comes in and the next man goes in until he's out. When they are all out, the side that's out comes in and the side that's been in goes out and tries to get those coming in out. Sometimes you get men still in and not out. When a man goes out to go in, the men who are out try to get him out and when he is out he goes in and the next man in goes out and goes in. There are two men called umpires who stay out all the time and they decide when the men who are in are out. When both sides have been in and all the men have been out, and both sides have been out twice after all the men have been in, including those who are not out, that is the end of the game. There is an alternative. 
The two old men in white coats, the umpires, walk together to the middle of a large green field, each carrying three long sticks and two little ones. Each plants his three sticks in the ground, 22 yards apart, and puts the little sticks on the top. Then they turn around and look towards 22 younger men at the end of the field. And it starts to rain. What a grand pastime. As pastimes go, boating is pretty popular too. And author Jerome K. Jerome is particularly well known for his book, Three Men in a Boat. Originally intended as a guidebook, it took the form of a sequence of anecdotes of British life near the turn of the century. Here's a passage in which Jerome, Harris and George each has a go at sailing. We pulled up in a backwater just below Cookham and had tea. And when we were through the lock, it was evening. A stiffish breeze had sprung up in our favour for a wonder. For, as a rule on the river, the wind is always dead against you, whatever way you go. It's against you in the morning when you start for a day's trip and you pull a long distance, thinking how easy it will be to come back with the sail. Then, after tea, the wind veers round and you have to pull hard in its teeth all the way home. When you forget to take the sail at all, then the wind is consistently in your favour both ways. This evening, however, they had evidently made a mistake and had put the wind round at our back instead of in our face. We kept very quiet about it and got the sail up quickly before they found it out, and then we spread ourselves about the boat in thoughtful attitudes, and the sail bellied out and strained and grumbled at the mast, and the boat flew. I steered. There is no more thrilling sensation I know of than sailing. It comes as near to flying as man has got to yet, except in dreams. The wings of the rushing wind seem to be bearing you onward, you know not where. You are no longer the slow, plodding, puny thing of clay creeping tortuously upon the ground. You are a part of nature. Your spirit is at one with hers. Your limbs grow light. The earth seems far away and little, and the clouds so close above your head are brothers, and you stretch your arms to them. We had the river to ourselves, except that far in the distance we could see a fishing punt moored in midstream on which three fishermen sat, and we skimmed over the water and passed the wooded banks, and no one spoke. I was steering. As we drew nearer, we could see that the three men fishing seemed old and solemn-looking men. They sat on three chairs in the punt and watched their lines intently, and the red sunset threw a mystic light upon the waters, and the little sail stood out against the purple sky. The gloaming lay around us, wrapping the world in rainbow shadows, and behind us crept the night. We seemed like knights of some old legend, sailing across some mystic lake into the unknown realm of twilight, and to the great land of the sunset. We did not go into the realm of twilight. We went slap into that punt where those three old men were fishing. We did not know what had happened at first, because the sail shut out the view but from the nature of the language that rose up upon the evening air, we gathered we had come into the neighbourhood of human beings and that they were vexed and discontented. Harris let the sail down and then we saw what had happened. 
we had knocked those three old gentlemen off their chairs into a general heap at the bottom of the boat, and they were now slowly and painfully sorting themselves out from each other and picking fish off themselves, and as they worked, they cursed us. Not with a common cursory curse, but with long, carefully thought-out, comprehensive curses that embraced the whole of our career and went away into the distant future and included all our relations and covered everything connected with us. Good, substantial curses. Harris told them they ought to be grateful for a little excitement, sitting there fishing all day. And he also said that he was shocked and grieved to hear men their age give way to temper so, but it did not do any good. George said he would steer after that. He said a mind like mine ought not to be expected to give itself away in steering boats. Better let a mere commonplace human being see after that boat before we jolly well all got drowned. And he took the lines and brought us up to Marlow. And at Marlow we left the boat by the bridge and went and put up for the night at the Crown. And if you enjoyed that excerpt from Three Men in a Boat, you'll be pleased to know that an audio copy is available to borrow from our library. And now it's time for A Little Flanders and Swan, The Bedstead Men. When you're walking in the country far from villages or towns, when you're seven miles from nowhere and beyond, in some dark deserted forest or a hollow of the downs, you may come across a lonely pool or pond. And you'll always find a big brass broken bedstead by the bank. There's one in every lock or mere or fen. Don't think it's there by accident. It's us you have to thank. The Society of British Bedstead Men. Oh, the hammer ponds of Sussex and the dew ponds of the West are the part of Britain's heritage, the part we love the best. Every eel and fish and mill pond has a beauty all can share. But not unless it's got a big brass-broken bedstead there. So we filch them out of attics, we beg them from our friends, we buy them up in auction lots with other odds and ends. Then we drag them across the meadows when the moon is in the sky. So watch the wall, my darling, while the bedstead men go by. The League of British Bedstead Men is marching through the night, a desperate and dedicated crew. Under cover of the hedges, always keeping out of sight, for the precious load of bedsteads must get through. The Society for Putting Broken Bedsteads into Ponds has another solemn purpose to fulfil. On our coastal sands and beaches, or where waving willow wands mark the borders of the river, stream or rill, you'll always find a single laceless left-hand leather boot. A bootless British river bank's a shock. We leave them there at midnight. You can track a member's route by the alternating prints of boot and sock. Oh, the lily ponds of Suffolk and the mill ponds of the West are part of Britain's heritage, the part we love the best. Our riverbanks and seashores have a beauty all can share, provided that there's at least one boot, three treadless tyres, a half-eaten pork pie, some old oil drums, a supermarket trolley, a lorry load of breeze blocks and a broken bedstead there. It's a form of archaeology. You never know what you might find hidden in the weeds of a pond. A priceless memento, perhaps, of a famous moment in history, such as Waterloo or the Magna Carta. 
John Plush has made up a word search based on that very idea. Last time we did this, I read you what sounded like an article from a fashion magazine, but which turned out to be made up of words all to do with food. Coco Chanel, the toast of Paris. If you heard it, you may remember we had about a dozen foods hidden in the text of the article. Well, this time we're trying to spot words that describe moments in history. For example, the Great War or the Restoration. Now, both of those expressions are hidden in this short passage. When I addressed the crowd, I was so nervous, I'm sure I looked quite grey. Twas not a good look. And halfway through, I needed a rest. Oration is not my strong point. Did you hear them? Great War was hidden in... I'm sure I looked quite grey. Twas not a good look. And restoration, of course, was... I needed a rest. Oration is not my strong point. I've got nine more moments in history for you to find. Here are the first four. Agincourt, D-Day, Crusades and Hastings. I'll give you those again. Agincourt, D-Day, Crusades and Hastings. That's what you're listening out for, but where are they hidden? They're all buried deep in the text of an article which sounds like it comes from the travel section of a dating website. And it goes like this. Imagine courting your future wife by taking her on the holiday of a lifetime. To the seaside, perhaps. Indeed, a cruise aids relaxation. And you don't want to do anything in haste in situations like this. Yep, they were all there. Agincourt was first. Then D-Day, Crusades, and finally Hastings. Well, in case you haven't found them all, I'll uncover them for you in a moment. But before I do, if you press the track back button on your player, that's the leftmost button of the three, you can hear the passage again. So here they are, revealed, and I'll signal each one with a sound like this. Imagine courting your future wife by taking her on the holiday of a lifetime. To the seaside, perhaps. Indeed, a crusade's relaxation. And you don't want to do anything in haste in situations like this. Ready for the rest? OK, now we're after Renaissance, Hiroshima, Plague, Magna Carta and Waterloo. I'll repeat that. Renaissance, Hiroshima, Plague, Magna Carta and Waterloo. Our Advice to Lovers article continues like this. If she already has children, it's on special outings such as a foreign jaunt where you can be her hero. She must be in awe of the suitor who can not only play games with her young family but also speak the lingo. And since fast food menus are practically an international language, a Big Mac and a carton of chips may be all you need to win everybody's heart. And remember that should you fail to win the fair maid, in love and war to lose is as honourable as winning. Well, I think maybe that might have been a bit more difficult. Remember, you're trying to find Renaissance, Hiroshima, Plague, Magna Carta and Waterloo. 
press that trackback button to hear the passage again. Just in case there are any you haven't got yet, I'll read it again, but this time with a to highlight where the words are. If she already has children, sans special outing such as a foreign jaunt, where you can be her hero, she must be in awe of the suitor who can not only play games with her young family, but also speak the lingo. And since fast food menus are practically an international language, a big magna carta of chips may be all you need to win everybody's heart. And remember that should you fail to win the fair maid, in love and war to lose is as honourable as winning. Moments in history hidden in a modern dating site. Whatever next? Indeed, what next? What of the future? Global warming? Deforestation? The loss of wildlife? The Woodland Trust has been protecting and conserving our woodland for over 40 years. Gloria. Our woodlands face many threats and challenges today from development, inappropriate farming methods, pollution and various diseases attacking our native trees. It is estimated, for instance, that ash dieback will eventually kill around 95% of our native ash trees. All this will, of course, further reduce the amount of woodland in the UK, which already has only 13% woodland cover, as compared to an average of 37% in other EU countries. Trees confer so many benefits. They provide habitats for innumerable plants, animals, insects and birds. They give shade and shelter in urban areas. They help to reduce the impact of flooding and minimise the runoff of pesticides and chemicals from farmers' fields. Given the impact of global warming, the need to protect and plant more trees becomes imperative as trees absorb carbon and other gases from the atmosphere. A single mature tree can absorb 48 pounds of carbon a year and makes enough clean oxygen for four people to breathe fresh air. Last, but by no means least, psychologists tell us that walking through woodland is good for our physical health and mental well-being. Yet only 18% of people in the UK have a wood within easy walking distance of their homes. Given these facts, it is obvious how vital it is to protect and conserve our native woodland, and that's where the Woodland Trust comes in. The Trust was founded in 1972, and from small beginnings has grown into the UK's largest woodland conservation charity. The Trust campaigns to protect precious ancient woodland and fight for those whose existence is threatened. It's estimated that 600 areas of ancient woodland are currently endangered. It also works with communities, schools and organisations to create new native woodland. The Woodland Trust has over 500,000 active members and manages more than 1,000 areas of woodland covering a total of 26,000 hectares and has planted 43 million trees since 1972. If you listen to the November edition of The Talking magazine, you will remember the involvement of Julian Fellows, the writer of Downton Abbey, in one aspect of the work of the Woodland Trust. 
Over the last five years, the Trust has planted a number of woods to act as a living memorial to those men and women who died in the First World War. If you would like to know more about the work of the Woodland Trust, you can visit their very informative website at www.woodlandtrust.org.uk. Of course, the Woodland Trust protects not just the woodlands, but also the creatures that live in it. A member of the Trust is sculptor Kirsty Kenny from just south of the Scottish border, and she is passionately involved in the fight to protect the UK's endangered red squirrel population, inspired by the sight of a grey squirrel in the woods near her home. Janet. Until that day, I'd only ever seen red squirrels in the woods around Brampton, Kirsty says. This squirrel was grey, and I knew that if we didn't do something, and quickly, our reds were doomed. From the gimlet-eyed viewpoint of the UK's most iconic woodland creature, Kirsty's home patch is frontier country. Under siege from the million grey invaders that surround them, our surviving reds are making a last stand all along Hadrian's Wall. Last estimates suggest that no more than 160,000 are left nationwide, three-quarters of them in the Scottish Highlands. Further south, the vigilance of Woodland Trust volunteers like Kirsty, a professional sculptor, is keeping the greys at bay. Indeed, everywhere in Britain where red squirrels still have a poor hold, time is running out. Only last autumn, it was discovered that the last Lakeland colony at Grasmere has shrunk from 30 individuals to just a dozen. Greys have finally arrived and passed on the deadly squirrel pox virus, which kills most reds that contract it within a couple of weeks. Now, however, woodland lovers, timber growers and conservationists are teaming up to turn the tide. A 3,000-strong volunteer army has signed up for squirrel protection duty with the UK Wildlife Trust, which hopes to recruit 2,000 more in the near future. They will report sightings of encroaching greys and spread the word about why our native red is worth saving. It's not just about who scores higher on the cutie pie index. Yes, it's true that our tidy little reds are the squirrels your parents would approve of, having been brought up on tales of squirrel nutkin. Greys build big, bad hair day nests, whereas reds make a perfectly round dray with a knobbly crust of twigs and a smooth lining of grass and moss. And just enough space for tufty in the middle, and maybe a tufty kitten or two. But the Woodland Trust's big beef with greys is their love of vandalism and their sheer weight of numbers. Adolescent greys routinely strip bark from around the upper trunks of young broadleaf trees, dooming them to a slow death. And while reds live two or three to an acre, five times as many greys can share that space and strip the habitat of nuts and seeds, robbing food from neighbours like dormice and voles. As for their red cousins, it's nothing personal. It's just that greys are bigger, bolder and hog the best eating and they pass on the deadly pox to which they are immune. Grey squirrels were imported from North America in the 1870s by rich Victorians to add variety to their estates, and in the 150 years since, nothing has halted their march, trapping, shooting, poisoning, 
even setting up red-only reserves. Heather Swift looks after many of the Trust's remaining red strongholds in northern England and says that for now, culling the grey is the only way to protect the red. The arrival of greys can cause the collapse of a red population in a matter of months. Without human help, forget it. They can't make it on their own. There is one other surprising new hope emerging for Reds, though, and it has royal backing. A rallying call by Prince Charles has prompted 32 partners, including the Trust, to launch the UK Squirrel Accord, which is nearly halfway to raising the £1 million needed to develop a squirrel contraceptive. It's hoped it could be ready by 2023. It would be disguised in a tasty nut paste and left in traps weighted to allow in only grey squirrels, says Squirrel Accords' Adrian Vass. One lick would be enough to make males and females infertile for six years. Meanwhile, the Trust is involved in two other promising initiatives. One is the reintroduction of our native pine martin. Just as grey squirrels were arriving in the UK, their only native predator, the pine martin, was being hunted to near extinction by Victorian gamekeepers. By the early 1900s, the fierce little pine martin was common only in the Republic of Ireland and in isolated parts of northern Scotland. Aberdeen University biologist Emma Sheehy was the first to spot a link between the Republic's flourishing red squirrel population and the presence of pine martins. Now she's hoping to discover whether putting martins back might prove a humane and natural way to deter the grey invaders. Meanwhile, in mid-Wales, the Vincent Wildlife Trust has released 51 Scottish pine martins as part of a pilot reintroduction programme. Woodland Trust's Mike Townsend is an advisor on the project and observes the story of the squirrel and the pine martin is a morality tale about what can happen when we remove one piece of an ecosystem and the natural balance is lost. The second is the Long Forest Project, setting out to plant 100,000 trees and improve 120 kilometres of hedgerow across Wales. Two of its target areas are red habitats and the new hedges will give them shelter and extra food. Back in Cumbria, the volunteer group set up by Kirsty Kenny a decade ago is still helping Reds hold their own. They are beautiful and comical, she enthuses, but they're timid too and will chitter-chitter at you and stamp their feet on a branch, just as though they're giving you a good telling off. A cross one even threw a pine cone at me. It obviously wanted me off its patch. Research shows that even in red squirrel frontier zones, barely 10% of people know how close to extinction they are, and only 30% understand why greys are a threat. So Kirsty and her comrades set out their stall at country parks and shows to act as the Red Squirrel's ambassadors and show off Kirsty's squirrel sculptures, which so far have raised 1,700 for the cause. Of course Red Squirrels are cute, and that's part of their charm, she concludes. But they are also one of our best-loved indigenous creatures. They are ours, and they belong here. We mustn't lose them. Indeed. Margaret Buckle again. Summer lightning. How warm it is and still. 
the summer dark with soft enticing touches folds us round. Spiced perfumes are abroad of lemon balm, lad's love and lavender, and something more, some wild thick wanton breath from shrub or tree, heavy upon the windless night. Not sleep, not rest, but quivering life, aware in every sense, is loose this night, and even the moonless sky vibrates, alive with restless energy and silent stream of light. Coming up, Queen Victoria, undressed. John Betchman on golf. A saucy short story. And of course, Dylan Thomas. But first, back to our cricket match. After a suitable interval for refreshment, Mr Hodge led his men, except Mr Harcourt, who was missing, out into the field and placed them at suitable positions in the hay. The batsman came in. The redoubtable Major Hawker, the fast bowler, prepared to bowl. In a quarter of an hour, he had terrified seven batsmen, clean-bowled six of them and broken a stump. Eleven runs, six wickets, last man two. After the fall of the sixth wicket, there was a slight delay. The new batsman, the local rate collector, had arrived at the crease and was ready, but nothing happened. Suddenly, the large publisher, who was acting as wicketkeeper, called out, Hi, where's Hawker? The words galvanised Mr Hodge into portentous activity. Quick, he shouted, hurry, run, for God's sake, to the shoes! And he set off at a sort of gallop towards the inn, followed at intervals by the rest of the side. But they were all too late. The gallant major had already lowered a pint and a half of mild and bitter, and his subsequent bowling was perfectly innocuous, consisting, as it did, mainly of slow, gentle, full pitches to leg, which the village baker and even occasionally the rate collector hit hard and high into the long grass. The score mounted steadily. Disaster followed disaster. Mr Livingstone missed two easy catches off successive balls. Mr Hodge allowed another easy catch to fall at his feet without attempting to catch it and explained afterwards that he'd been all the time admiring a particularly fine specimen of oak in the squire's garden. He seemed to think that this was a complete justification of his failure to attempt, let alone bring off, the catch. The baker lashed away vigorously and the rate collector dabbed the ball hither and thither until the score, having once been 11 runs for six wickets, was marked up on the board as 50 runs for six wickets. Things were desperate. 20 to win and four wickets, assuming that the blacksmith's ankle and third slip's kneecap would stand the strain, to fall. The professor of ballistics sighed deeply. Major Hawker grinned and edged off in the direction of the shoes. The remainder of the team drooped. But the remainder of the team was wrong. For a wicket, a crucial wicket, was secured off Mr Hodge's very first ball. And it happened like this. Mr Hodge's first ball was a slow long hop on the offside. The rate collector, metaphorically rubbing his eyes, felt that this was too good to be true and he struck the ball sharply into the untenanted offside and ambled off down the wicket. It hardly gone a yard or two when he was paralysed by a hideous yell from the long grass into which the ball had vanished, and still more by the sight of Mr Harcourt, who, aroused from a deep slumber amid a comfortable couch of grasses and daisies, sprang to his feet and, pulling himself together with miraculous rapidity, seized the ball and unerringly threw down the wicket.
50 for seven. Last man, 22. 20 to win, three wickets to fall. Mr Hodges' next ball was his top spinner. And it would have, or might have, come very quickly off the ground had it ever hit the ground. As it was, one of the short legs caught it dexterously and threw it back while the umpire signalled a wide. Mr Hodge was promptly hit for two sixes and a single. This brought the redoubtable Baker to the batting end. Six runs to win and three wickets to fall. Mr Hodge's fifth ball was not a good one, due mainly to the fact that it slipped out of his hand before he was ready. It went up and came down in a slow, lazy parabola about seven feet wide of the wicket on the leg side. The baker had plenty of time to make up his mind. He could either leave it alone and let it count one run as a wide, or he could spring upon it like a panther and, with a terrific six, finish the match sensationally. He sprang like a panther, whirled his bat cyclonically and missed the ball by about a foot and a half. The wicket-keeping publisher had also had time in which to think and to move, and he also had covered the seven feet. True, his movements were less like the spring of a panther than the sideways waddle of an oldermanic penguin. But, nevertheless, he got there, and when the ball had passed the flashing blade of the baker, he launched a mighty kick at it, and by an amazing fluke, kicked it onto the wicket. Even the ancient umpire had to give the baker out for the baker was still lying flat on his face outside the crease. "'I was bowling for that,' observed Mr Hodge modestly. "'I had plenty of time to use my hands,' remarked the wicket-keeper, "'but I preferred to kick it.' Donald was impressed by the extraordinary subtlety of the game. Six to win and two wickets to fall. The crisis was now desperate. The fieldsman drew nearer and nearer to the batsman. Livingstone balanced himself on his toes... Even the imperturbable Mr Southcote discarded the piece of grass which he'd been chewing so steadily. Mr Hodge took himself off and put on the Major, who had by now somewhat lived down the pint and a half. The batsmen crouched down upon their bats and defended stubbornly. A snick through the slips brought a single. A desperate sweep at a straight half volley sent the ball off the edge of the bat over third man's head and scored two. The scores were level and there were two wickets to fall. Silence fell. The Major, his red face redder than ever, bowled a fast half-volley on the leg stump. The Sexton, a man of iron muscle from much digging, hit it fair and square in the middle of the bat, and it flashed like a thunderbolt, waist-high, straight at the mighty boon. The thunderbolt struck him in the midriff like a red-hot cannonball. With a fearful oath, Boone clapped his hands to his outraged stomach and found that the ball was in the way. He looked at it for a moment in astonishment, and then threw it down angrily and started to massage the injured spot, while the field rang with applause at the brilliance of the catch. Donald walked up and shyly added his congratulations. Boone scowled at him. "'I didn't want to catch the bloody thing,' he said sourly, massaging away like mad. "'But it may save the side,' ventured Donald." Blast the bloody side, said Boone. The scores were level, and there was one wicket to fall. The last man in was the blacksmith, leaning heavily upon the shoulder of the baker who was going to run for him, and limping as if in great pain. He took guard and looked round savagely. He was clearly still in a great rage. 
The first ball he received, he lashed out wildly and hit straight up in the air to an enormous height. It went up and up and up until it became difficult to focus it properly against the deep, cloudless blue of the sky, and it carried with it the hopes and fears of an English village. Up and up it went, and then at the top it seemed to hang motionless in the air, poised like a hawk. Then it began its slow descent. In the meanwhile, things were happening below. In the first place, the blacksmith forgot his sprained ankle and set out at a capital rate for the other end, roaring in a great voice as he went, Come on, Joe! The baker, who was running on behalf of the invalid, also set out, and he also roared, Come on, Joe! And side by side, the pair cantered along. From the other end, Joe set out, and he roared, Come on, Bill! So all three came on. And everything would have been all right, so far as the running was concerned, had it not been for the fact that Joe very naturally ran with his head thrown back and his eyes goggling at the hawk-like cricket ball. And this in itself would not have mattered if it had not been for the fact that the blacksmith and the baker also very naturally ran with their heads turned not only upwards but also backwards as well, so that they too gazed at the ball. Halfway down the pitch, the three met with a mighty crash and the hopes of the village fell with the resounding fall of their three champions. But what of the fielding side? Things were not so well with them. If there was doubt and confusion among the warriors of Fordenden, there was also uncertainty and disorganisation among the ranks of the invaders. The whole team, with the exception of the mighty Boon, were moving towards strategical positions underneath the ball, and not one of them appeared to be aware that any of the others existed. Major Hawker shouting, Mine! Mine! in a magnificently self-confident voice, was coming up from the bowler's end like a battle cruiser. Livingston and Southcote, the two cracks, were approaching competently. In the meantime, the Professor of Ballistics had made a lightning calculation of angles, velocities, density of the air, barometer readings and temperatures, and had arrived at the conclusion that the critical point was one yard to the northeast of Boone and he proceeded to take up station here, colliding on the way with Donald and knocking him over. A moment later, Bobby Southcote came racing up and tripped over the recumbent Donald and was shot headfirst into the Abraham-like bosom of Boone. Boone stepped back a yard under the impact and came down with his spiked boot, surmounted by a good eighteen stone of flesh and blood upon the professor's toe. Almost simultaneously, the portly wicketkeeper bumped the professor from behind. The learned man was thus neatly sandwiched between Tweedledum and Tweedledee. At last, the ball came down. And it was a striking testimony to the mathematical and ballistical skill of the professor that the ball landed with a sharp report upon the top of his head. Thence it leapt up into the air a foot or so, cannoned onto Boone's head, and then trickled slowly down the colossal expanse of the wicketkeeper's back, bouncing slightly as it reached the massive lower portions. It was only a foot from the ground when Mr Shakespeare Pollock sprang into the vortex and grabbed it off the seat of the wicketkeeper's trousers. The match was a tie, and hardly anyone on the field knew it except Mr Hodge and Mr Pollock himself, for the two batsmen and the runner, undaunted to the last, had picked themselves up and were bent on completing the single that was to give Fordenden the crown of victory. Unfortunately, dazed with their falls, with excitement and with the noise, they all three ran for the same wicket, 
simultaneously realised their error and all three turned and ran for the other, the blacksmith leading. But their efforts were in vain, for Mr Pollock had grabbed the ball and the match was a tie. And both teams spent the evening in the three horseshoes, and Mr Harcourt made a speech about the glories of England and then fell asleep in the corner. Donald got home at one o'clock in the morning, feeling he had not learnt very much about the English from his experience of their national game. Well, we've had a good look at cricket and sailing. John Plush has been absorbing Jenny Landreth's book on some of the history behind another very popular sport, swimming. In November 1782, novelist Fanny Burney writes, We rose at six o'clock in the morn, and by the pale blink of the moon went to the seaside, where we had bespoken the bathing woman to be ready for us, and into the ocean we plunged. It was cold, but pleasant. I have bathed so often as to lose my dread of the operation. Fundamental human experience really doesn't change, however many the years, and those last two sentences will have a resonance for any cold-water swimmer today, for whom cold is more than pleasant. It's desirable. It's enlivening and exhilarating and somehow essential, and maybe it's written in your DNA, but you don't know that until you know it. And the notion that it might be addictive is certainly one that will chime. Swimming in cold water is ridiculous, unfathomable. It's maybe even a form of madness, and yet here we are, doing it, and then doing it again, the next day, willing the temperatures to drop. The bathing woman Fanny Burney refers to would have been a woman in charge of a newfangled bathing machine, a kind of glorified garden shed on wheels invented by a Quaker to help preserve a woman's modesty. In this hut, our plucky novelist would have changed into her flannel slip before some hardy working woman known as a dipper yoked a horse to the shed and pulled her to the shoreline and gently, or perhaps otherwise, persuaded her into the water. In that simple image lies a whole world of class and privilege. Two women, one a pale and fragile creature, a woman of words and ideas, undressing out of her silks and fineries in a shed, her delicate bones rattling as the cranky wheels grind down the beach. The other, a necessarily solid woman, built of hard physical draft, toiling away to get this contraption across the pebbles. One woman in service to the modesty and decorum of the other. Now, Before I start a class war, some small consolation might be found in the fact that some of these dippers were celebrated figures in their towns. Mary Wheatland, immortalised on postcards as the Bogner Mermaid, a title which holds less glamour than its inventor might have hoped, ran the machines to the east of the pier on that beach from 1849 until her retirement, aged 71, in 1906. Brighton's most famous was Martha Gunn, described as a large, sturdy woman who dipped from 1750 to 1814 when she retired from ill health. After 64 years of hoiking posh women down the pebbles in a shed, Martha earned the ultimate Brighton accolade of having a pub named after her. Still there, it's now a gastro-pub. It's unclear whether that's what Martha would have wanted. 
The most luxurious of these bathing machines had canopies that extended from their roofs almost down into the water so you could be immersed and nobody would catch a glimpse of you at all. And if you displayed any reluctance, your dipper might well have given you a good old shove into the water. Very relaxing. And don't forget, Fanny Burney was doing this in November. At this point in history, the sea bathing season was in the worst possible months, because the colder the water, the more medicinal the effect. On a hot summer's day, even the grey chop of the North Sea can be hard to resist. But in the middle of November? Remarkably easy to stay on dry land. Having some beefy woman prepared to push you in might be really good incentive to get a move on. Fortunately, and eminently sensibly, the bathing season shifted at the start of the 19th century to when the temperatures were warmest. It is compulsory, if you're writing any kind of history of women, to include Jane Austen. And like Fanny Burney, Austen was a key sea bather too. She wrote to her sister of the delights of getting in the water at Lyme Regis in 1804, and staying in rather too long. It would have been one of the few activities an unmarried woman was allowed to indulge in, and almost for that reason alone, however cold the water, it certainly beats needlepoint. Austin gave Mrs. Bennet a line in Pride and Prejudice that a little sea bathing would set me up for ever, to underline the health benefits, which would have been Austin's official reason for enjoying the water, but it also put distance between Mrs. Bennet's view of coastal trips and that of Austin's younger characters. Their enjoyment of places like Brighton and Weymouth leaned less towards the therapeutic and more towards the morally lax seductions and temptations. Ah, oh, the young, nothing changes. For every famous lady novelist recounting her adventures, there would have to have been a merry band of ordinary working women and girls who maybe could and would get in the water. Women who worked in harbours and fishing villages, or who were raised by rivers or on the coast girls who might have joined their brothers frolicking in the waves on a hot day. These were not women whose lives revolved around leisure. They were not the ones discussed in fine literature and draped across lithographs. But they're a reminder that the pleasures of being immersed in water have never been something that belongs to only one class. Christopher Love, in A Social History of Swimming, reports, By 1800, men and women were bathing together in the sea in some cases. Although there were already trends towards segregation of the sexes in bathing, he goes on, there was also an acceptance of mixed bathing in some areas and social circles. By the middle of that century, though, those social circles were very limited, bohemian even, and segregated swimming was the norm. These were Victorian times, after all, and we know that in those repressed days even the sight of a nicely turned table leg might send men into a giddy, lustful spin, let alone the thought of being in the same bit of sea as an actual living woman. The Queen herself may have been gaily bathing twice a day on her holidays for pleasure, but in other respects her time was marked by moralistic prudery. Yes, our very own Queen Victoria took to the sea at the Isle of Wight in July 1847. Encouraged by Prince Albert, who was a fan, Queen Victoria had a rather fancy bathing machine parked at their private beach at Osborne House. From within it, 
she would emerge in billowing robes and a perky sea cap, remaining under the canopy until only her head was visible above the water. That was as much about privacy as modesty. The whole of the Western Empire might have collapsed in shock and disgust if a picture had been taken of the Queen undressed. She wasn't the first royal to swim, but she was the first royal woman, and the first to do it for pleasure, not just health. I thought it delightful, she is reported as saying, till I put my head under the water when I thought I should have stifled. Because mixed bathing roused the red-faced blustering concern, by the 1860s all sorts of bylaws were in place in coastal resorts to stem this source of potential outrage. Bylaws like this one from Suffolk. A person of the female sex shall not, while bathing, approach within 100 yards a place at which any person of the male sex above the age of 12 years may be set down for the purpose of bathing. Bylaws that led to situations like one reported in Hastings, where a male swimmer was required to stand some distance from his own wife, vainly shouting directions to her while she tried to master the basics of swimming. You can picture the scene. A man standing way up the beach, bellowing fruitlessly to a woman in the water. Move your arms! No, your arms! There's an image. The Bogner Mermaid, a true daughter of the sea. Welshman David Thomas named his male heir Son of the Sea, which in Welsh is Dylan. That son of the sea wrote one of my favourite poems, Fernhill. Now as I was young and easy under the apple boughs, about the lilting house and happy as the grass was green, the night above the dingle starry, time let me hail and climb, golden in the heydays of his eyes. And honoured among wagons I was prince of the apple towns. Once below a time, I lordly had the trees and leaves trail with daisies and barley down the rivers of the windfall light. And as I was green and carefree, famous among the barns, about the happy yard and singing as the farm was home, in the sun that is young once only, time let me play and be golden in the mercy of his means. And green and golden, I was huntsman and herdsman, the calves sang to my horn, the foxes on the hills barked clear and cold, and the Sabbath rang slowly in the pebbles of the holy streams. And all the sun long, it was running, it was lovely, the hayfields high as the house, the tunes from the chimneys, it was air and playing, lovely and watery, and fire green as grass. And nightly under the simple stars, as I rode to sleep, the owls were bearing the farm away. All the night long I heard, blessed among stables, the night jars flying with the ricks and the horses flashing into the dark. And then to awake, and the farm like a wanderer white with the dew come back, the cock on his shoulder. It was all shining. It was Adam and Maiden. The sky gathered again, and the sun grew around that very day. So it must have been after the birth of the simple light in the first spinning place, the spellbound horses walking warm out of the whinnying green stable on to the fields of praise. 
and honoured among foxes and pheasants by the gay house under the new-made clouds and happy as the heart was long in the sun borne over and over I ran my heedless ways. My wishes raced through the house-high hay and nothing I cared at my sky-blue trades that time allows in all his tuneful turning so few and such morning songs before the children green and golden follow him out of grace. Nothing I cared in the lamb-white days that time would take me up to the swallow-thronged loft by the shadow of my hand in the moon that is always rising, nor that riding to sleep I should hear him fly with the high fields and wake to the farm forever fled from the childless land. Oh, as I was young and easy in the mercy of his means, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. Dylan Thomas's love of the written word is shared by the author of our next piece, a short story written by Worcester's own Angela Lanyon. Pauline Beale reads The Proof of the Pudding. place at last. Carrie kicked the cardboard carton across the kitchen and let out a whoop of joy. You're sure that's empty? Mark peered inside. I don't want to find you've thrown out stuff of mine. Grasping him around the waist, Carrie gave her husband a squeeze. Would I ever? The best cook in the world. I know how important your recipes are. She lifted her face and smiled into his dark brown eyes. I bet you can knock everyone else into a cocked hat. Chef's hat? He grinned and bent down to kiss her. Wasn't I the lucky one, she continued, marrying a bloke like you? For an answer, he put his arms round her shoulders and gave her a long, satisfying kiss. And now the removal men have gone. Hang on, she said. What's that? Before they'd moved, things hadn't been easy, and the sight of an unexpected envelope on the mantelpiece made Carrie's heart jump. Mark scanned the contents. No need to get your knickers in a twist. It's from the people who used to live here. Lists of handy shops and, he turned the paper over, a note about our neighbours. Number eight, away a lot, but very friendly. Number twelve, Nosy and rather straight-laced. That must have been who I saw peering out when we arrived, Carrie said. I don't expect we'll see much of her, Mark said, then laughed. I wonder what she'll make of my odd hours. Well, we'll soon find out, because here she is, coming up the path. And look at me! Carrie stared in dismay at her stained jeans and the streaks of dirt all over her T-shirt. And you're not much better. She pushed her fingers through her spiky blonde hair and went to the door. The first sight of their new neighbour was a bit off-putting. She was very tall and thin, and everything she was wearing, from her neat lace-collared blouse to her smart black pumps, 
looked as if it had been starched and polished within an inch of its life. Welcome to Lime Tree Avenue, she said, introducing herself. I'm Miss Pringle, your next-door neighbour. Carrie Allen, Carrie said, smiling, then held out a hand. I'm sorry, I'm not very clean. Don't worry, I know what it's like when you're moving. In an instant, Miss Pringle was through the door and taking everything in. I've just been baking and brought you a little something for supper, she said. It's a quiche. What on earth's that? Mark asked when their visitor had gone. A quiche. Carrie started to cut it. The filling ran out. Mark prodded the pastry with a fork. Flipping cardboard! I can't eat that. You'll have to bin it. Suppose she asks if we've enjoyed it. Carrie hated hurting people's feelings. She'll be sure to ask when she comes for her plate back. Tell her it was delicious. Mark stood up. Come on, love. I know we're both tired. Let's go and find a takeaway. After a couple of weeks, Carrie wished she'd not lied to Miss Pringle. Every other day, and always at the weekend, she would just pop round with something she had baked. The dustbin got full, and Carrie couldn't even throw in the crumbs for the birds, as Miss Pringle's garden overlooked their own. Your, um, your partner works late, she said to Carrie one day. Don't you worry about him. He's on shifts, Carrie said. She definitely wasn't going to explain that Mark was the head chef at the Hatherford Arms in the town centre. And actually, she continued, he's my husband. I'll show you the wedding photos if you like. Miss Pringle turned bright red. No, 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 I wasn't suggesting anything. Then she shot out of the door. Carrie hoped she'd seen the last of her. Nosy old bag. Mark muttered when Carrie told him. He reached across the table and squeezed her hand. She didn't upset you, did she? Carrie shook her head. Not really. I just wish she'd stop bringing stuff round. Then you'll have to tell her. Easier said than done, thought Carrie, the next time Miss Pringle tapped at the door. She was as neat as ever, and Carrie felt she could have cut herself on the pleats in her skirt. It's so kind, but we are all right, she said. Now don't argue. I know what young people are like. Miss Pringle put a loaf on the kitchen table. No one knows anything about cooking these days. She glanced round the kitchen, looking for the recipe books that Mark kept at the hotel. I'm a great fan of TV cookery programmes. Bake Off, and you know, Jamie Oliver, the naked chef... Ooh, a bit before your time. A plan began to form in Carrie's mind. She took a long look at the brick-like loaf and then said, Perhaps you'd like to come and have a meal with us one evening. She really didn't want to hurt her neighbour's feelings, but it was all getting a bit too much, and the thought of Mark being patronised really upset her. When she told Mark, he suggested that she left it to him. Jamie Oliver, it is. The day was hot, the windows were open and the table was laid. Miss Pringle minced up the front path, 
in a calf-length dress of some floaty material. Don't worry, Mark whispered, sticking his head round the kitchen door. Marching straight in, she made a beeline for the kitchen. I must have a little peep to see how your husband is coping. Carrie waited for the outraged shriek she knew would follow. Here's to us, darling, she said ten minutes later. I don't know how you kept a straight face. Mark grinned. But I was wearing my boxers. The nosy neighbour tamed. Donald Trump is well accustomed to strained relations with his neighbours. David Milne owns a property some eight miles north of Aberdeen with stunning views across grass-covered sand dunes out to the North Sea, right in the middle of a golf course, Donald Trump's golf course. Before he became president, Mr Trump tried to compulsorily purchase the Milne's home to build the course, but they wouldn't sell. In retaliation, the future most powerful man on the planet built a fence around and almost touching the house and then sent David Milne the bill. Mexico, anybody? Whatever he may have thought of Donald Trump had he known him, John Betjeman would almost certainly have enjoyed his golf course. Seaside Golf by John Betjeman. How straight it flew, how long it flew, it cleared the rutty track and soaring disappeared from view beyond the bunker's back. A glorious sailing bounding drive that made me glad I was alive. And down the fairway far along it glowed a lonely white. I played an iron sure and strong and clipped it out of sight. And spite of grassy banks between, I knew I'd find it on the green. And so I did. It lay content two paces from the pin. A steady putt and then it went Oh, most surely in, the very turf rejoiced to see that quite unprecedented three. Ah, oh, seaweed smells from sandy caves and time and mist in whiffs. Incoming tide, Atlantic waves slapping the sunny cliffs. Lark song and sea sounds in the air and splendour, splendour everywhere. I wonder if stray golf balls are ever fished out of the sea in Aberdeenshire. While on their trip afloat on the Thames, Jerome K. Jerome and his two friends discovered a most unusual fish. Jerome was a Midlander. He was born in Warsaw in 1859. He attended the local grammar school and wished to go into politics. But the death of his father when Jerome was 13 and his mother when he was 15 forced him to leave school. He found work with a local train company collecting coal that fell along the railway. Then, encouraged by his sister Blandina, he decided to try his hand at acting in 1877. But it was not a success, and after three years found himself penniless at the age of 21. Over the next few years, Jerome had many different jobs, among them journalist, schoolteacher and solicitor's clerk. Finally, in 1885, he had some success with On the Stage and Off, a comic memoir of his experiences as an actor, followed by Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow in 1886. 
It was in 1889 that Jerome, shortly after his marriage, sat down to write the book for which he is best known, Three Men in a Boat. The three men being himself, Jay, and his friends, George and Harris. The book is a comic masterpiece. It was an instant success and has never been out of print. Its popularity was such that the number of registered Thames boats went up 50% in the year following its publication and it contributed significantly to the Thames becoming a tourist attraction. In its first 20 years alone, the book sold over a million copies worldwide. It's been adapted to films, TV and radio shows, stage plays and a musical. But what of that unusual fish, Barney? George and I and Montmorency the dog went for a walk to Wallingford on the second evening of our boat trip and coming home we called in at a little riverside inn for a rest. We went into the parlour and sat down. There was an old fellow there smoking a long clay pipe and we naturally began chatting. He told us that it had been a fine day today and we told him that it had been a fine day yesterday. Then we all told each other that we thought it would be a fine day tomorrow and George said the crops seemed to be coming up nicely. After that, it came out, somehow or other, that we were strangers in the neighbourhood, and that we were going away the next morning. Then a pause ensued in the conversation, during which our eyes wandered around the room. They finally rested upon a dusty old glass case, fixed very high up above the chimney-piece, and containing a trout. It rather fascinated me, that trout. It was such a monstrous fish. In fact, at first glance, I thought it was a cod. Ah, said the old gentleman, following the direction of my gaze. Fine fellow that, ain't he? Quite uncommon, I murmured, and George asked the old man how much he thought it weighed. Eighteen pounds, six ounces, said our friend, rising and taking down his coat. Yes, he continued, it was sixteen year ago, come the third of next month, that I landed him. I caught him just below the bridge with a minnow. They told me he were in the river and I said I'd have him. And so I did. You don't see many fish that size about here now, I'm thinking. Good night, gentlemen. Good night. And out he went and left us alone. We could not take our eyes off the fish after that. It really was a remarkably fine fish. We were still looking at it when the local carrier who'd just stopped at the inn came to the door of the room with a pot of beer in his hand, and he also looked at the fish. "'Good-sized trout, that,' said George, turning round to him. "'Ah, you may well say that, sir,' replied the man, and then, after a pull at his beer, he added, "'Maybe you wasn't here, sir, when that fish was caught.' "'No,' we told him. We were strangers in the neighbourhood. "'Ah,' said the carrier, "'then, of course, how should you? "'It was nearly five years ago that I caught that trout.' "'Oh, was it you who caught it then?' said I. "'Yes, sir,' replied the genial old fellow. "'I caught him just below the lock, leastways. "'What was the lock then, one Friday afternoon? "'And the remarkable thing about it is that I caught him with a fly. "'I'd gone out pike-fishing, bless you, "'never thinking of a trout, "'and when I saw that whopper on the end of my line, "'blessed if it didn't quite take me aback. "'Well, you see, he weighed twenty-six pound. "'Good night, gentlemen. Good night.' Five minutes afterwards, a third man came in, "'described how he had caught it early one morning. And "'Then he left, and a stolid, solemn-looking, "'middle-aged individual came in and sat down over by the window.' 
None of us spoke for a while, but at length George turned to the newcomer and said, I beg your pardon. I hope you'll forgive the liberty that we perfect strangers in the neighbourhood are taking, but my friend here and myself will be so much obliged if you tell us how you caught that trout up there. Why, who told you I caught that trout? was the surprise query. We said that nobody had told us so, but that somehow or other we felt instinctively that it was he who had done it. Well, it's a most remarkable thing, most remarkable, answered the stolid stranger, laughing, because, as a matter of fact, you're quite right, I did catch it, but fancy your guessing it like that. Dear me, it's really a most remarkable thing. And then he went on and told us how it had taken him half an hour to land it and how it had broken his rod. He said he'd weighed it carefully when he reached home and it had turned the scale at 34 pounds. He went in his turn. And when he was gone, the landlord came in to us. We told him the various histories we'd heard about his trout, and he was immensely amused, and he laughed very heartily. <laughs> Fancy Jim Bates and Joe Muggles and Mr Jones and old Billy Maunders all telling you that they'd caught it. <laughs> well, that is good, said the honest old fellow. Yes, they are the sort to give it me to put it up in my parlour. If they had caught it, they are. <laughs> and then he told us the real history of the fish. It seemed that he had caught it himself years ago when he was quite a lad, not by any art or skill, but by that unaccountable luck that appears to always wait upon a boy when he plays the wag from school and goes fishing on a sunny afternoon with a bit of string tied to the end of a stick. He said that bringing home that trout had saved him from a whacking and that even his schoolmaster had said it was worth the rule of three and practice put together. He was called out of the room at this point, and George and I turned our gaze upon the fish. It was really a most astonishing trout. The more we looked at it, the more we marvelled at it. It excited George so much that he climbed up on the back of a chair to get a better view of it. And then the chair slipped, and George clutched wildly at the trout case to save himself, and down it came with a crash, George and the chair on top of it. "'You haven't injured the fish, have you?' I cried in alarm, rushing up. I hope not, said George, rising cautiously and looking about. But he had. That trout lay shattered into a thousand fragments. I say a thousand, but they may have only been nine hundred. I didn't count them. We thought it strange and unaccountable that a stuffed trout should break up into little pieces like that. And so it would have been strange and unaccountable if it had been a stuffed trout, but it was not. That trout was Plaster of Paris. And with the untimely demise of the prize trout, we too must say goodbye. But not before a final word from Margaret Buckle in her poem, The Cuckoo. I heard the cuckoo call far off today. And with his call, the old enchantment came of long-gone springs, when he would call all day. But we had woodlands then, beech on the slopes, tall oaks and stately stands of lime and elm, where he, the crafty one, magical and musical, could hide among the leaves and shout his call that seems like Merlin's voice to reach our ears from every side by every breeze that blows but never leads to where he sits and calls. 
how rich the lane sides were in summer days. Bird, cherry and the curious service tree could flourish there, with ash and birch and sloe, and where a small stream rang, the willows followed and hawthorn blossom drifted on the grass. But now the thinning woods, the bare roadsides, ungracious to the birds, make him no home. He calls but seldom now, the mocking one, yet still the old charm holds me as he calls. Green shades of Sherwood haunt me, where the deer moved through the dappled sunlight or, at noon, rested in cool, deep fern. And Arden, too, the lover's forest, opens secret glades, full of the songs of birds and water running and murmuring of bees in hollow trees. Still, far away and deep in time, beckon the mocking echoes of his call among the fabled woods of ancient lays, the forest of the fairy haunted fountain, Rosiliand. From me, Stephen, Gloria, Barney, and Janet, we wish you a very warm and peaceful summer. Goodbye. Cheers. Bye bye. Toodaloo.